many of the uh, many of the people in this room have arrived at uh, what I call the traditional view on divorce and remarriage through uh, personal experience. A lot of you have been divorced and you've stood for your marriage, or some of you were in an adulterous marriage and you've repented by by separating. And uh, I'm I'm not either of those things. I grew up. Uh, believing the permanency of marriage. And so I, I don't come at this with uh, personal experience on that side of the fence. But what I have to offer, I think, is valuable in that what most of you have done with your lives in following Christ is what I would call the first step in this quiet reformation that's happening. There is people all over the country who are coming to this doctrinal truth of the permanency of marriage. And what I want to do today is give you a vision for the next step, to to step back a little bit and see uh, what God is doing uh, on on a grander scale, things that affect all the saints in uh communal ways, in corporate ways, covenantal ways. And I'm not going to propose specific things, but I'm going to offer you things that are in the Bible for your consideration and things that God, when Don asked me to speak, he asked me to uh, talk about what was on my heart. And this is what's on my heart. And this is what God has been speaking to me. This is what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to me, these principles in Scripture which have been the impetus, the, uh, the engine behind what I'm doing in northern Colorado, what my sister's doing, and my dad. I titled the talk New Covenant Violence. And it's kind of a provocative term that I've, I've used to uh, describe uh, excommunication, disassociation. And uh, so if the first step of this quiet reformation that's happening, quiet but intense, is following Christ in these personal relationships, I think that the second step has to do with this excommunication, disassociation principle that we see in Scripture. Now, there's a whole spectrum of beliefs regarding excommunication, and what I mean by excommunication is simply putting somebody who is in high-handed rebellion outside the camp, not fellowshipping with them, um, disciplining them by uh, disfellowship and uh, keeping uh, the sacraments from them. Those would be, that would be, I guess, my working definition of excommunication. And I'm not saying that this is the uh, cure-all to everything that is going on uh, in the church, but I do think that this is a weapon of warfare that uh, Scripture teaches us to implement and that will result in uh, blessings for God's, uh, for God's people. 
oftentimes when one finds a hammer, everything becomes a nail. So uh, I want to, I guess, give the caveat of uh, uh, wisdom and discernment in um, taking these dangerous things that God has given us um, and implementing them with wisdom and uh, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. There's a certain kind of Christian who is prone to uh, extremes and fanaticism, and uh, I would say that that is generally my temperament. And I don't think that these things will be too difficult for that kind of a Christian, that kind of saint. But what I'm speaking to is uh, people who are more temperate and amiable in their dispositions. This is for you as well. This is these are things in God's word that are for everybody, uh, even when they are not as palatable as certain things. So what does the Bible say about excommunication? I would go all the way back to the creation. Uh, God warns Adam and Eve that if they eat from uh, the forbidden tree, that they would, uh, as the Hebrew says, dying, they will surely die. Um, and that's an interesting thing because they don't actually physically die in that moment. They're excommunicated from the garden. And so throughout scripture, you see this kind of interplay between death and excommunication. What happens next? Cain kills his brother Abel. What happens to, Cable, uh, uh, what happens to Cain? Cain is excommunicated. He is sent out from Eden so you have his parents, they're excommunicated from the garden, from the garden of Eden. And then there's this larger space, the Eden, which actually follows the pattern of the tabernacle and the temple. And he is excommunicated from, the, from Eden. And then what happens next? You have, you have godly lines with Seth and you have ungodly lines with uh, Abel, uh, Cain. But the world is filled with violence and the world continues in more extreme sin. Uh, particularly with Enoch. And what does God do? What is this third step? He wipes, he wipes them out. He wipes out the world. And I, I, just, I, I draw this one because as permanency people, as traditionalists as regarding marriage, faithful to Scripture, what, do we point, what does Jesus point to with, the merit, with marriage? What is the prescriptive foundation for marriage? He goes back to the garden. He goes back to creation. And so I'm bringing up this excommunication aspect because it also goes back to the garden. It's important. So, and then also another aspect of it is, it's a th notice it's a threefold aspect. Adam and Eve, Cain, the world. Two excommunications and a death, a worldwide death. These kinds of things are uh, continu they're continued in the law with Moses. Various... Uh, 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 various kinds of uncleanliness are put outside the camp, and various kinds of sins are punished through capital punishment. Uh, let me just read. Uh, let me read this here from this is Deuteronomy 17. He says, "If there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing His covenant." who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, 
And if it is indeed true and certain that such an admonition has been committed in Israel, excuse me, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. That's Old Testament, right? We don't follow the Old Testament. Well, kind of. Jesus quotes, he quotes this. Where does he quote this? He quotes it in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus, who we do follow, positively affirms this principle. Not that we kill people with old covenant violence, but that we kill them with new covenant violence via excommunication. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. And I think that that's interesting as well, uh, just from a, a personal standpoint, somebody who is in sin, um, there, is a certain, there is a certain fear that can, that can overcome somebody when you, when, when, say, someone's in sin, you see that they are in sin, and the loving thing to do, as Don had mentioned, the loving thing to do to this person is to confront them about their sin. And in that moment, there can be a kind of fear about confronting them. This person can throw back sins in your face. This person can bring up all kinds of things you've done in the past. All of that stuff, and all of that stuff can almost paralyze you. Uh, and I've, I've seen that happen in communities. When I was in Moscow, I was in a church community there, and the instinctive reaction that I saw from fellow seminarians, these guys who are going to be pastors, these people who are looking over the souls of people, their instinctive reaction is to automatically go to authorities when they see something that's wrong. And so I think what God is cultivating there is this personal aspect, this confronting privately and alone. And if that person repents, you've won your brother and you, you, cut, you cover their sins and you don't blast it to everybody else. You don't tell everybody else. You say, you're forgiven. The second thing, if, you hears, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's what Jesus says. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that, and then he's quoting Deuteronomy or this principle, this general equity of the law positively. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church or the assembly or the ecclesia, whatever you want to put in there. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And what he means by that is anathema, uh, unclean. You are not in fellowship with the people of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, you will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two uh, of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Uh, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so you see this repeated two or three aspect coming from Deuteronomy, and Jesus 
bringing the law to its fullness. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He reveals it. He brings it to its fullness. And he shows us that we don't stone people anymore, even in the Old Testament, for sins that were deserving of death. There, uh, there wasn't stoning often. Uh, David wasn't stoned. He deserved it. Adultery and murder. Uh, there were um, most likely sodomites in the time of Asa. And they, they could have been put to death, but they were excommunicated from the land. And so the law is teaching us that we deserve death here. And Jesus, what the new covenant arrangement is doing, is both more gracious in that it allows somebody to repent and it allows them to be brought back into fellowship. The goal of excommunication is reconciliation. That is what we are striving for. And in the old covenant, when we would put them to death, that was not an option, but it is now. And let me, what I want to do here, this is kind of, this is the bread and butter of of the talk here. I want to read Paul implementing this principle over and over and over and over again. It's amazing when you start looking at this, particularly in a culture which is uh, pejoratively termed snowflake or is very sensitive to these kinds of things. You don't want to use shame on people and things like that. Paul is flying in the face of all of this. He says in his letter to the Romans, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. So this is a teaching thing. This isn't even like a a morality thing. Contrary to the doctrine, the teaching which you learned. And do what, Paul? Avoid them. Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. Actually, I don't have, this is what I need the Bible for. It says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication that is not, that uh, so much is named among Gentiles, that one of you has his father's wife, and yet you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath uh, done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, your glorying is not good, Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed therefore. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And that purge out the old leaven. This is the same principle at play. This is that keeping the camp clean. This is Jesus' words affirming what the law had taught us in new covenant terms. Paul to the Ephesians, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be even named among you as is fitting for saints, and have 
no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. No fellowship. Paul to the Thessalonians. And if you want the references, I'd be happy to give them to you. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For Paul, tradition isn't bad, as long as it's the right tradition, right? Receiving the right tradition. If he walks not according to that, withdraw from every brother. And that's something that he clarifies in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, when I, write not, when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people of this world, because then you'd have to go out of the world. I meant immoral brothers, those who claim the name of Christ. Again, Paul to the Thessalonians, and if any, anyone does not obey our word in the epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Paul doesn't have a problem using shame to correct someone's behavior. Paul to Timothy, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, why? That the rest also may fear. Paul to Timothy, having a form of godliness but denying its power, he's talking about false teachers, and from such people turn away. Or in uh, the New American Standard Version, avoid such men. Paul to Timothy, men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, again, false teachers, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Paul to Titus, for there are many insubordinate whom, whose mouths must be stopped. That's, a, that's definitely a loose one and historically has been used to censor uh, books and things like that. Um, not saying that that's right or anything, but it's, it's, it's in the same. All of these are dealing with different kinds of things. False teachers, people who have not received correct doctrine, uh, people who are in immorality themselves, uh, but it's the, the same essence of this new covenant violence. Paul to Titus, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Uh, John, uh, he addresses this letter to the elect lady and her children, uh, that could possibly be an actual woman and her family, or it could be a metaphorical uh, reference to the church. Uh, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive them into your house, nor greet him. Why is that, Paul? For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Yikes. So I'm... I'm, I'm wanting to collect all these and throw them, put them before you because these are in the word of God and we have, to, we have to defer to them. We have to do something. They have to mean something. They have to affect our lives in some kind of way. And uh, so I, I want to simply affirm that we are, we are both ministers of life and of death. To those who are perishing, we are the fragrance of death. And to those who are being saved, we are the fragrance of life. We are sweet aroma. And uh, one of the many reasons that men are to exercise authority in the church is because by nature, we are death dealers. We are the ones tasked with this new covenant violence. And we are made in such a way that it's fitting for us to do so. 
where women are, according to nature, life givers and nurturers, and those are good things. Those of us in this quiet reformation can overemphasize uh, our ministry of reconciliation at the expense of the ministry of division. We are not ministers of one or the other. We are both. Jesus breaks his body to form a new body, his church. He divides Adam's body to form Eve, and out of the two are one. The word of God divides the soul and the spirit, just as the Levitical priest's sword divided the joint and marrow of the sacrifices to God. And like those Old Testament sacrifices, we are living sacrifices, being divided and chopped up, and the word of God cutting us up and rearranging our beings so that we can be burned up in the fire of the Holy Spirit and become a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God, become more like God, become in union with God. God divides things and he reconciles things. That's the business of God. He destroys things and he reconstitutes them. He puts them to death and he brings them back to life. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I really believe that disassociation and excommunication has this nuclear bomb power in spiritual places. And it goes against the grain of the zeitgeist of the age to be friendly, to put a smile on your face, to be nice. And somehow we have to hold these two things in concert. We are to be loving. We are to be gentle. We are to be these things. And yet we are to be faithful. And we are, to, we are to keep the camp clean. So I, I, I will close by simply saying that one of the reasons that this has really been something to me, I mean, one, I think the Holy Spirit ministers to each of us and brings things out of uh, the scripture for us to uh, wrestle with and implement. But my own father implemented this in his life with our family, who are all Christians. I mean, I believe they are objectively Christians who have apostatized and are not going to inherit the kingdom unless they repent. Um, and he would confront them. I mean, I'm a teenager. I'm kind of seeing this stuff go on in my, in my per peripheral vision of life. And he's confronting his sisters and his brothers uh, divorced and remarried, all of these people, for years, very patiently, very graciously, uh, uh, a very, a very uh, uh, meek, in the real sense of the word, man, a man of power who is restrained and gentle and kind, can speak a soft word, for years doing this, and then eventually saying, we have to disfellowship. And that, for me, was a big deal. We're not going to the family reunion anymore? We're not going to this Christmas anymore? Nope. 
And I'm just like, man, this guy actually believes the stuff that's in the Bible. He actually believes it. And he has this kind of quiet courage that I don't see in other men. And that kind of masculinity, that kind of fierce picking up your cross and sacrificing yourself for, your, for, for Christ. But also, I knew, that there, I knew there was protection for me. And I think my, my sister could speak to that. I, from, a, from a woman's perspective, I think that there's, that there's a protection there that I think a woman can, can realize. For me, it was the courage. This guy is bold without the bravado, without the, the UFC chest thumping. <laughs> Not to say that that's wrong. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I mean, it was just a true godly masculinity. And it involved this new covenant violence. And so... I, I give this to you. I humbly uh, uh, submit these things to you to you know, explore the word uh, yourself, and uh, I'd be happy to discuss if you have any, any other questions or anything about it. Thanks.